This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. We are back after a short break in London for the WNA Symposium, then Europe and Asia, where I met with many interesting people in the sector. But to talk to me today about the symposium, I have Brandon Monroe, the CEO of Benderman Resources. Brandon is an insider in the sector, and he was a chair on the demand subgroup and a member of the uranium supply and secondary supply subgroup. So, Brandon, welcome to this podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Marcelo. Yeah, it's always great talking together. We always manage to probe into some unusual deep corners of the sector and otherwise have a good time. <laughs> True. So, um, before we talk about the symposium, uh, this weekend we saw a drone attack causing havoc in Saudi Arabia, affecting the production of 5.7 million barrels of oil a day. Now, in your opinion, would this impact the uranium markets in terms of uh, people starting to think about diversification of power sources, uh, stability in Kazakhstan, and if I believe that uh, the biggest source of revenue for the Kazakh government is oil, so we might see a 10-year appreciation and, and more government uh, request for security in the nuclear reactors. Could you please comment on those? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, quite timely what we've had uh, being able to talk about it right now. Um, I think the investment community, it's it's Monday Australian time right now, and they're really just getting to grips with estimating how long the disruption can be. First and foremost, of course, it's going to affect oil equities and the oil price. And after that, gold in terms of ramping up some serious geopolitical risk. But Interestingly, it does have a positive correlation with uranium. There is something of a psychological correlation between the oil price and the uranium price. And last time I did the analysis, the correlation coefficient between those um, two prices was running surprisingly high above 0.8%. Um, the reason I say psychological is into the medium to longer term oil prices and the outlook for oil affects the relative economics with nuclear. And in fact, we're now starting to see some new dynamics in terms of oil disruption boosting the case for electric vehicles, um, which needs a clean energy supply to see its full emissions reductions targets, which again benefits nuclear. But short term oil movements shouldn't have any real effect on nuclear demand and therefore uranium demand. But nonetheless, they do tend to correlate and they do tend to influence the mind of equities investors and traders. The more important effect that you've touched on is the Tengi appreciation. Uh, So as your listeners would know, almost 40% of world supply of uranium comes out of Kazakhstan through Kazatomprom and its joint ventures. And they've had a huge competitive advantage for several years because I would estimate about 90% of their domestic cost of uranium production are Tengi denominated. It's labor. They've got plentiful sulfuric acid um, produced in Kazakhstan from base metals mines and others. So that's a Tengi denominated cost for them. Being the world leaders in 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 situ recovery mining, they produce most of their own componentry. So that's Tengi denominated. Transportation, et cetera, is Tengi denominated. So when the Tengi's weak, 
and they're selling into a US dollar uranium price that really helps with their margins you know, and enables them to maintain uh, incredibly low prices uh, for the uranium sector. Now we've got a situation where any appreciation in oil prices is likely to put pressure on the Tengi. Uh, a couple of years ago, the oil and hydrocarbon industry accounted for 76% of Kazakhstan's foreign reserves earnings, um, compared to only a couple of percent for uranium, for example. So any movement in oil has a big, big effect on the Tengi, and that would therefore have a big effect on their cost base. Now that Kazatomprom's a LSE-listed company, that's a, an effect that is going to flow through fairly quickly and will play very much into Kazatomprom's tactics and approach from now on in terms of production curtailment, supply discipline. And if we see a sustained increase in the oil price, then I think it's just going to put them under pressure to make a further next move in terms of production curtailments. And the other thing that's quite interesting in this particular dynamic is one of the key catalysts in the sector that doesn't have a likelihood in my opinion, but it's definitely out there, is if the Trump administration decides the next step to mount pressure on Iran is to impose sanctions on Russia. Uh, so the Iranian sanctions are really far-reaching. Um, they target financial centres all over the world. It's extremely hard to do business with Iran as an ordinary business or an ordinary citizen. Uh, even buying carpets is a difficult thing now if you're a, a Persian carpet wholesaler, for example. Um, you can see the collector in me coming out here. Um, but the US can take it a step further, given that Russia is one of the key suppliers of various things, including petroleum, uh, including um, petroleum services into Iran. So if the US or the Trump administration says enough is enough, we need a strong rebuke of the uh, expected or accused Iranian involvement in these strikes, but we don't want to go to war, this might be the next escalation that they choose. The reason why it's so important and why it's got the utilities attention is that depending on how those sanctions are implemented, if it's a blanket sanction or a targeted energy supply sanction, we could have a situation where the utilities are told that as of next month, they can no longer receive enriched EUP, um, uh, which is an advanced form of um, enriched uranium in the nuclear fuel cycle. They could be told that they can't receive EUP as of next month, for example. The Trump administration is unpredictable, but they're very uh, decisive when it comes to these types of things. So if we saw an escalation in that sanctions tension, and if it did affect Russia, it's going to be dramatic. It'll affect all aspects of the nuclear fuel cycle, enrichment to a less extent conversion, but certainly uranium. And it could really put the uranium sector into a spin. Now, do I think it's uh, probable? No. Do I think it's possible? Absolutely. Do the utilities think it's possible? Well, they do. And uh, even UXC was highlighting this as a concern in their latest market report, the possibility that the US sanctions on Iran would extend. So that's the wild card that we're dealing with. And people are starting to talk about these drone strikes as being a black swan. 
if it escalated to that point, it would certainly be a black swan for uranium investing. Awesome. Good. Well, that was a complete analysis, Brandon. Thank you for that. Now, uh, talking about the symposium, um, this year was an important year because it was the launch of the Biennial Nuclear Fuel Report. This was the 19th edition of the report and it got a lot of praise from diverse sources. So, first of all, Brandon, could you please tell us what this report is and why it is so important? Well, it's a report produced from within the industry by the industry, the broad nuclear industry represented by World Nuclear Association. It takes the entire nuclear fuel cycle, which, as you know, Marcelo, starts with uranium mining, moves through conversion of yellow cake into a gas, UF6, considers the enrichment of that UF6 from the naturally occurring proportion of uranium-235 isotope, which is only 0.7%, into commercial power grade enrichment, which is more like 3% to 5%, then considers the fabrication of that enriched material into reactor fuel uh, configurations, then considers all of the elements of secondary supply that sprinkle into those various supply dynamics and creates a supply projection that is then compared to three demand scenarios for nuclear fuel, which are effectively demand scenarios for nuclear energy worked backwards into how much uranium does that require. It's very important because it contains a number of useful insights that come directly from the dark corners of the industry and the secondary supply chapter is particularly good this year. It's also important because it is a reference tool for the industry itself, including the fuel buyers of uranium and the other nuclear fuel services. So it's a good insight as to what the state of mind of the industry is at any point in time. And in your case, Marcella, because you were up at London attending symposium and uh, sitting almost next to each other for the launch of this report, not only do you get to understand the contents of the report, but you got to chat to various players within the industry and get their opinion. And as you said, it's been universally well received but from both the uranium producers and the various suppliers of nuclear fuel supplies right through to the buyers of the fuel, the, ultimately the nuclear utilities. Absolutely. And this was the first year since uh, Fukushima that the report shows a growing demand for uranium under all three scenarios, right? So uh, just, just so our listeners understand what I'm talking about, uh, the WNA produces estimates under three scenarios. The reference scenario, which is the base case, an upper scenario and a lower scenario. And it's quite exciting to see the uranium demand increasing under all three. So uh, this is something I've been telling people for a while now. It's a growth industry, right? Absolutely. So the reference case or the base case, um, which many consider to be the most probable, that represents a business as usual case for the nuclear sector. So there isn't a dramatic improvement in climate change policy as it affects nuclear. Uh, there isn't a big shift in government and societal attitudes towards nuclear. It's just where we are today, the types of attitudes we're, that we're burdened with as a power producer and the status quo moving forward. So that's illustrating almost a 2% per annum increase. And when you're dealing off a base, which is quite large, that's sizable. But then if you start to look at the upper scenario, that projects many of the enhancements and improvements 
in the sector that we do see the beginnings of, but aren't yet baked into the reference scenario. So that assumes things like a greater appreciation for the clean energy credentials of nuclear energy in the overall power mix. Uh, it assumes a better level of societal support for nuclear, particularly in key markets. It assumes government support for nuclear in the US, which we're now seeing. Um, it assumes a greater level of adoption of nuclear energy in China, although not what I would call a super bullish scenario for China. I think the Chinese, my personal view is that the Chinese projections in the uppercase are thoroughly realistic. Uh, and it also assumes that existing reactors have a greater length of time, that some of the hardline anti-nuclear policies in places like Taiwan and South Korea, they start to mitigate in the upper scenario and a little bit more sense prevails. Now, when you start in running a scenario that has those assumptions in it, then we're looking at 3.5% per annum gro annual growth rate. And finally, for the lower scenario, we're assuming a deterioration in the current status quo, but that effectively means that nuclear demand flatlines. So even though it would lead to more reactors being turned off as they reach the end of their life and not having operating extensions, um, some further closures in Western Europe and that lower scenario assumes a general degrading of nuclear's acceptability in the West. Nonetheless, there's still a minimum level of growth that has to be obtained and delivered in China, India, Russia, and so on that, that fully offsets that so that we see a, a, a flatlining, very modestly increasing level of demand for nuclear power and therefore uranium. Sure. And, and, and not to mention the Harmony Initiative, right, which is a, a framework for action in which they believe uranium can reach uh, at least 25% of the world's electricity before 2050, which is a very ambitious program. But if we take that one into into account, the, the upper scenario is uh, dwarfed, right? That's right. That's right. It looks ambitious from where we are today. And... Uh, certainly from where we were a couple of years ago when the program was first launched, it looked ambitious. But I do think it's achievable. It does rely on those factors that I talked about in terms of greater recognition of nuclear's contribution to mitigating climate change. Um, it, it relies on probably a more realistic view of renewables' contribution to mitigating climate change and what renewables can ultimately achieve within a diversified and secure electrical grid. Um, the general viewpoint I don't think is realistic at the moment, so that needs to be rebased uh, and nuclear stands to gain from that. Uh, but in terms of industrial production capacity and ability of an industry to execute on that, there aren't any fatal flaws. There aren't any significant constraints. In fact, all the industry needs to do is build nuclear reactors at the rate that it did back in the 1970s and 1980s. So the industry has been there before. Uh, it's not an impossibility. It just requires a, an improving trajectory of acceptance. And when you look at the challenges that face not only the world at large with climate change policy and a limited number of viable solutions, but also the challenges facing China and India and other markets with air quality uh, problems, we just need those to slot into, um, slot into place and that opens wide an opportunity for nuclear to fulfil that type of potential. And I should add, Marcelo, that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
um, they have a number of scenarios that far outweigh what the industry set itself as a goal by this Harmony program. Um, so of the 89 scenarios that the IPCC ran, uh, the average across all of those is an increase in nuclear energy by 2020 of two and a half times. So the IPCC is basically saying to the world, if nuclear doesn't increase on average two and a half times, we're not going to hit the one and a half degree target. Sure, sure. And this is a five-fold increase in nuclear generation, not something to sneeze at. So, um, uh, well, we are working on that, right, Brandon? We, we, we are trying to talk to people about the importance of nuclear energy. Uh, for for a cleaner world. So listen, I, I spoke to many people during the symposium, and I mean, few buyers, mining companies, brokers, uh, traders, few producers, consultants, investors, uh, you name it. And the tone was a bit more cheerful towards the miners and the industry overall. This was my first symposium, so I can't comment too much about previous ones, but I believe people are starting to understand that there will be uranium available, but the price needs to go up. Did you feel the same? Yes, I did. I did. And I think that cheer, as you say, it came from a couple of directions. First of all, the mood generally was more buoyant because we've been having winds in the broader nuclear power sector generally. Um, I've been going to symposiums since 2010, and that was a very buoyant time. That was before Fukushima. And then by 2011, the industry was ducking for cover. So the industry didn't very easily and fully recognise the negative impact of Fukushima. Um, the industry was a little bit too factually oriented and in hindsight failed to understand what a big role misinformation and public sentiment would play as a response to Fukushima. And so for a number of years, the industry just felt like it was getting worse. Year on year, it was just getting worse. It was just getting worse. And that was not only affecting things that you and I see, like the uranium price, but it was affecting a whole bunch of different aspects of the industry and its overall profitability. Now it's eight years on, we've turned a corner from Fukushima and we're now on a trajectory of things are very much getting better. And it's, it was already doing that last year at last year's symposium. But for many people, they just weren't ready to believe it in the sector. Now they've had two years of evidence that it is getting better, that it is a new age, that nuclear is achieving extraordinary penetration at a policymaker level, IPCC being one of those examples. And so the mood as an industry, people were just happier to be there. Uh, now, that filters down, as you say, to the uranium mining sector. And I think a large part of that was the nuclear fuel report. Um, to paint a picture for your listeners, uh, we had a very large stage with about 500 delegates in attendance. And presenting the nuclear fuel report was Riaz Rizvi, who's the chief commercial officer of the world's largest uranium producer, being Kazatomprom. And then Jim Nevling, who is the senior fuel buyer for the world's largest non-government-owned utility, being Exelon Corporation, who operates 17 nuclear reactors in the US. They both gave the same message, which you just said, Marcelo, which is there is available uranium. It's geologically known. There are deposits. We have the expertise to explore further and find it, but that is not going to happen unless the price goes up. So for, for, to hear that from both the producer 
perspective and the utility perspective, sent a very direct message that seemed to penetrate much of the contrasting, confusing information that's been hitting us as uranium investors for some time. For the industry, it just came out crystal clear, even though the the report itself can't talk about price and relative economics in that way. Well, and the timing is good too, because, um, well, the contracting cycle has started already. So we might see an impact uh, going forward. And, uh, and it looks like the rest of the year will be quite eventful, right? Uh, there is the Nuclear Energy Institute conference in the US, and there should also be an outcome of this US nuclear fuel working group in October. Uh, we discussed the possible outcomes of this working group in our last podcast, uh, Brandon. But would you mind mentioning again the possible outcomes? Well, I think the the most talked about possible outcome, or let's say the, the most frequently produced rumor about it, is that in some way the US government will step into the fray. And that probably will be via a direct contracting arrangement from the Department of Commerce. Um, it's very unlikely, and I can't see how it would be at levels hoped for by the petitioners, sort of in order of 12 to 15 million pounds. Um, but it is quite possible that Department of Defence could come in on a much smaller basis, would, which would be enough to kickstart the production from some of the key US producers at the sort of price that they need. Um, now, that always made sense, and this was one of the things we discussed uh, in particular um, when the Section 232 resolution first came out. It makes a lot of sense for the US Department of Defence to step in here. Um, it's peanuts to them in the context of their overall budget. It is a requirement, although it's not an immediate requirement, but also they're looking to use government stockpiles to support the SMR, Small Modular Reactor, technology rebuild in the US. Um, I think the the Trump administration and Department of Energy, they understand that the US has lost the race when it comes to large-scale reactors. That's now dominated by Russia, China, South Korea, and perhaps France. But the race is still very much on when it comes to SMRs and other newer technologies. There's a huge push for that. And one of the things that the government needs to do as an enabler for these new technologies is release higher grain rich material. It's called HALU, H-A-L-E-U, and it's material that's up to 19% enriched rather than the um, maximum 5% enriched, which is permitted under current um, proliferation treaties and so on. So the government has to make that available if they're to play an enabling role. That would put further pressure on US strategic and military surprise. And so what we might see is the projections that are currently in place, which is the US has more than 20 years of uranium stockpiles for its naval fleet and other requirements. They might see that come forward and now is an opportune time to start buying. Okay, okay. Well, let's uh, wait and see. Not too long now. Uh, Brendan, is there anything else you would like to mention or comment on? Well, I think I might uh, take you up a little bit on your comment about the contracting cycle has started. I'm not so convinced of that. I think, yes, there are some utilities who are feeling the way at the moment. And, and as you are well aware, there have been a couple of requests for proposals put out. Uh, but I do feel that it's the, the, the industry or the sector 
needs to mature a little bit over the next three to six months before we'll see the resumption to proper contracting. Um, I think there's a couple of things that need to fall into place before the utilities will start that contracting process as we understand it. Um, first of all, we need to see the working group uh, uncertainty clear. That'll be hopefully 10th of October. Uh, as you say, the NEI forum that's taking place in Tennessee at the end of October will be very helpful because that's an opportunity for the US utilities to recalibrate their understanding. They'll then take that away, start to work on and update their own procurement strategies. And if we're seeing a rising spot price at that time, that then becomes the impetus for them to take action and start with their proposals. Um, you have identified correctly that there has been some contracting activity, but I just don't, I, I hate investors to listen to this and think it started. In my opinion, it hasn't started. There's, there's still a, uh, probably three to six months of activity in the uranium spot and midterm market that needs to take place before those utilities will go out in earnest and start to contract. Sure, sure. And the, and the signing of the contracts takes from three to, to nine months, right? So it's not something that's done overnight. But I'm just seeing more action in the sector and uh, Chemico is signing contracts uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they announce it and they still need to buy 10 million pounds, at least 10 million pounds of uranium uh, from now until the end of the year. So there's going to be activity in the sector for sure. No question, no question. So that activity, uh, is exciting. And I think that is something that we're likely to see. So Cameco, as you say, they need to purchase 10 to 12 million pounds. There's a number of utilities who I think will come out of the Nashville conference at the end of October, realising that they should just try and top up a little bit while prices are still where they are. And then the other thing that will, I believe, be a precursor to the contracting, resumption of contracting rounds, is when the utilities start feeling out the market, as a couple have done, as you say, Marcelo. Um, typically what they do is, is on an informal basis, they'll go to their uh, best suppliers, um, companies that they've dealt with on a fairly regular basis over the years, and they'll say, look, what would the price need to be? Give us a feel here. Now, you and I know that those numbers are coming back. If it's not Kazakh origin material, those numbers are coming back in the 40s. And... What the utility then says is, hmm, okay, look, thanks for that. It's going to be awfully difficult for me to um, recommend that upstairs the finance department of our utility enters into, a, say, a $44 contract when spot price is at 25 Leave it with me. But then what they do is they go to the midterm market and they go to a trader who says, we just need to nibble a bit and top up a bit for two-year delivery and three-year delivery. Um, what can you do for us on the carry trade? The trader then says, right, on today's spot market, we can buy it at $25.30. We'll put our interest holding costs onto that. We'll put our margin onto that. And we'll put our um, uh, uh, storage costs onto that. And then we're going to end up with a price of X, which will be low 30s. And that's when the utility says, well, I'm not ready to sign a $44 contract with the spot price at 25. But gee, that $31 uranium for delivery in three years time looks awfully attractive. I'm going to get myself some of that just in the meantime. What the, what the trader then has to do is he has to buy those pounds in the spot market today because they're not going to go naked on those sort of deals because it's too risky for them. And when you get half a dozen utilities all doing that at the same time, 
all of a sudden it's generated one, two, maybe even three million pounds of additional demand immediately in the spot market. If that comes in at a time when it's competing with Cameco for their 10 to 12 million pounds, when it's competing with utilities who are looking to top up a bit of inventory, and particularly if it's competing with other producers, uh, such as um, some of the smaller producers who've got contracts, even Arano potentially, that's when we'll see a rapidly escalating spot price. And if it escalates you know, 10% in a few weeks, that's going to be enough to get the attention of the financial buyers. Not only the recognised ones such as Uranium Participation Corp and Yellowcake, who would then go to raise money to acquire more uranium on the spot price, or in Yellowcake's case, from the Kazakhs, um, but it might also get the attention of hedge funds who would play in big enough amounts that they would go and buy £100,000 for $2.5-$3 million and start speculating in that way. So it very much follows a snowball approach. And we just need that little spark to get it going. And if we close the year, for example, at uranium at $35, well, then that will be enough for the utilities to come out of the blocks contracting in earnest. And if the spot price is $35, they're going to be racing to get those $44 pounds, um, which are the, the bottom of the cost curve from non-Kazakh production. And that's what will start the contracting cycle in earnest. Sure. Well, when take on need to look much further, just look at what happened to the US 6 market. And uh, I know that because of the, well, the Brazilian utility company tried to try to buy 650 tons of, uh, of US 6 to, for delivery this year and next and just couldn't get it. They had to, to, to reduce the quantity and, and be less restrictive on uh, origin requirements. So the, the same would happen to the to to the, the yellow cake, right? Oh, and you know that's a really good analogy for yellow cake that again has got the attention of the fuel buyers and the attention of the utilities. Uh, what was it? Almost two years ago, uh, Honeywell and Convidine closed down the Metropolis Works conversion facility, which is the only conversion capacity in the U.S. Um, now, at the time, there were a few lone voices, yourself and myself included, who were saying, gee, this is going to have an impact on price. But the feeling was that there was still entry around and just none of the people within the industry could believe that it would have an impact on price. And initially it didn't. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine whose job it is at Convidine to do all this stuff was quietly hoovering everything available. And he basically sucked up all of the mobile US6 in the in the industry, and then spot price started to move. And fast forward six months, it's gone up 500%. So from a conversion spot price of $4 a kilogram um, to $20 a kilogram. And although it was a pretty much a predictable event that price would go up, it seems to have taken everyone by surprise. And that's serving as a very, very useful analogue for rebasing the industry's feelings and expectations about what can happen in uranium. And after seven, eight years of being beaten up by Fukushima aftermath, now they're sensing that, well, maybe increasing uranium prices are possible. Maybe they're probable. And there's a new realisation amongst the industry. So that's why I say once we see a little bit of evidence in front of them in terms of a galloping spot price, 
um, their fears will be mirrored in what's happened in conversion prices. Awesome. Let's let's hope for that. And Brandon, uh, any news on Bannerman? Well, it's also a good time to be talking on Bannerman because I've just uh, signed off on the last requirement for an OTC QB listing in the US. And by the time this podcast goes to air, that'll be public news and publicly available. Um, it's it's really good news. And one thing that I've had very consistently in social media and Twitter and with people reaching out directly is, you know, please, would you consider a North American listing? Uh, we love the Bannerman story. We understand that African uranium has to play a really important role and we need African exposure in our portfolio alongside our other investments um, that might be Canadian, for example, but we find it just too hard investing directly through ASX. So we've, we've heard that and we've moved to what's called a QB listing on uh, OTC markets. Um, it's really good for a couple of reasons. The first one is the, it, it's an enabler for US brokerage firms to um, involve a stock like Bannerman in their client offering without jumping through extraordinary compliance hurdles. So in effect, we can comply with our ASX disclosure obligations without any additional SEC uh, compliance requirements. And the brokers and the researchers and so on, the analysts, um, they can then act on that. So it broadens our reach to brokerage firms, to investors. It also gives us a fantastic platform through the OTC IQ information portal. And I think it can just really improve and enhance our profile in North America, both for US and Canadian investors, without all the rigmarole of going through ASX. So I'm really hoping that that comes as good news at a time when the sector's pretty turning a corner and becoming buoyant. And certainly when the recognition of how crucial African uranium is going to need to play into the geopolitical context starts to become better known and understood and appreciated. And Brandon, what's going to be the ticker? The ticker is BNNLF. So B for Bannerman, N for Nelly, N for Nelly, L for Lion, F for Freddy. That's awesome, Brandon. Uh, just a full disclosure here. I own shares of Bannerman Resources and some accounts I manage also own shares of Bannerman. Having said that, this should not be taken as an investment recommendation at all. Thank you for that, Brandon. Listen, uh, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and talking to me. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I know. Absolute pleasure. And it was really great being together up in London as as well. I was, I was so pleased to be able to not only hear your perspectives, but to you know, chat to a few people together and, and share that experience. So I think we'll be looking back in a few years time, A, realizing hoping isn't required. We just need patience at this point. And, and secondly, secondly, I think, you know, in a few years time, we'll look back and we'll say, you know, that Remember that September 2019, that was that turning point and we were there. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Great, Brandon. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Marcelo. Take care. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. 
L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.